Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You've probably heard about Fiverr, a global marketplace of skilled freelancers. But sometimes businesses need to manage multiple complex projects simultaneously. That's why they created Fiverr Pro, where you can gain access to the very best freelancers, streamline your workflow with a user-friendly dashboard, and collaborate on projects with your team. Designed to handle projects of any size, Fiverr Pro is the ultimate freelance solution for your business. With no hidden membership or subscription fees to get started, visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's incredibly important to ensure that the public has a level of confidence in the rule of law, in the government, in the independence of the press. Right now, they don't. They don't trust business. They don't trust Congress. They don't trust the press. And that is really, really troubling. That's Christine Todd Whitman. She's the former governor of New Jersey, the former head of the EPA under George W. Bush, and part of a dying breed. She's a moderate Republican. This week, we'll talk about what it's like to disagree with the president when you're in the cabinet and why bipartisanship has become something of a dirty word. I'm especially happy to be talking with Governor Whitman this week because, as you may know, she and I have launched a task force that we're co-chairing with the Brennan Center on democracy and how we can improve and solidify our institutions, even in the face of attack, by this president. That's coming up. But first, let's get to your questions. So obviously, the biggest news in the last week about the Russia investigation was the surprise indictment of 13 Russian nationals and three uh, businesses by Robert Mueller last Friday. So off the top of my head, I have a few reactions. One, nothing about this indictment of the 13 Russians leaked anywhere. We didn't know about it. It kind of came out of surprise out of the blue, which makes you have to realize that there are many, many other things that are going on in connection with the Russia investigation that we similarly do not know about. And any day, any time, there could be additional charges against people who are already charged. There could be charges against people that you've never heard of, as happened again this past Monday. Or there could be charges against people that you've all been speculating about, like Jared Kushner or someone else. I'm not saying that those people will be charged. But what I am saying is we don't know what Mueller knows. Only he knows what he knows. The Mueller indictment from last Friday is based strictly on the law and the facts. And there's a legal consequence to it. But I think, you know, as we think about what this means and about what the president is going to do and what other consequences will be, that indictment also has a political effect as well. Number one, I think as other people have also suggested, it makes it harder for people to say, shut down the Russia investigation. Whether or not ultimately some charges are laid at the feet of people closer to Donald Trump or whether or not there's a report that implicates Donald Trump in any crime, by my count, I think there have now been 18 or 19 individuals charged, a number of guilty pleas, another guilty plea that's being rumored to happen soon on the part of Rick Gates. So all the people who suggest the Russia investigation and Bob Mueller 
should be shut down, uh, I think have less to stand on because there are real crimes being charged, there are real people being identified, and there is real misconduct being exposed. That's important, and it's going to take a while for that to unfold. Now, with respect to the particular indictment from Friday, none of those people, I have any reason to believe, will ever be brought to justice in this country. We don't have an extradition treaty with Russia. They're named publicly, I think in part, as part of what we used to call when we did this in my office, you know, name and shame. There's an argument to be made that if you don't have the ability to get people into custody, you file such an indictment under seal and you wait for them to travel and, you know, you roll the dice and maybe you'll be able to pick them up at some point. Bob Mueller clearly made the decision to make a public indictment in this form because he wanted to send a message to the Russians. He wanted to expose to the public the kind of activity in detail, uh, meticulously documented in the charging document, that the public should know about. And I think some people may be skeptical, does that have an effect or not? And I think that it can. As much as it is clear that Russians, at the behest of Vladimir Putin, tried to interfere in our election, Vladimir Putin does not admit it. It's still important to him to have plausible deniability. In fact, the, the, the fact that the president of the United States has on multiple occasions said that he will not criticize Vladimir Putin because he credits Vladimir Putin's denial. So the more evidence that's brought to bear and put in the public sphere that's incontrovertible that Russia interfered with our elections, that's bad for the Russians. They don't like it. It makes it increasingly untenable for Donald Trump not to criticize Russia for their interference. And it takes away an important talking point. So it keeps Trump on the hook a little bit in that regard. The one thing that Mueller's indictment of the 13 Russians is not, it is not a vindication of Donald J. Trump, um, although he said that. And you can claim anything you want, but it doesn't make it true. You know, typically in indictments, there's not a naming of 13 people who are believed to be guilty of a crime and then a separate section in an appendix saying, well, these four people are totally exonerated. It could be that nothing further comes of it, but it's not a vindication in any way, shape, or form. Here's a tweet from J.D. Francis. Preet Bharara, all these lying to the FBI charges seem like small potatoes. Could these be a precursor to greater charges, or is there anything to take away from them? So that's a good question. So I disagree with your premise. I think that lying to the FBI is a big deal. We charged it on a regular basis. Because, you know, think about how this would work if in the course of trying to find out evidence of a crime to see if it was committed, if people were allowed without consequence to lie to the FBI, you wouldn't be able to get to the bottom of anything. Um, and it also signals, by the way, that, as I've said many times, that Bob Mueller takes obstruction-type crimes very seriously, whether that's actual obstruction, destruction of documents, uh, coaching of witnesses, or lying, he takes it seriously and so seriously that he's charged a number of people with it. Yeah, it's often the case that the initial charge of lying to the FBI provides an entry point for putting some leverage on someone who you think might be able to cooperate in a substantial way with your investigation. People don't like to be charged with anything. And even though the jail time is not, you know, a huge amount, usually for a violation of the statute 18 U.S.C. 1001, it's something and can provide you know, an inflection point for people deciding to cooperate. But we'll see. We don't know how far this is going to go. This is Linda from San Jose, California. And I read that Congress has passed sanctions in 2017 to punish Russia for its interference and that Trump signed that bill into law. My question is, he has not enacted those sanctions at this point. 
given the incontrovertible evidence we now have, how can he not enact these sanctions? I'm asking both politically and legally. Thanks for all you do. Bye. That is actually a really great question and a question that I've asked, a question that much more important people have asked. It's extraordinary to me, and I think to a lot of Americans, that the President of the United States, in the face of all this evidence, in the face of the indictment now from last Friday, and in the face of the united and consensus opinion of all of his own intelligence agencies, does not lift a finger to retaliate in any way against the Russian Federation. Uh, Instead, he tweets on a regular basis saying that he and his administration have done more. I think he tweeted this a couple of days ago. He and his administration have done far more with respect to Russia than Obama ever did. Now, I'm the first to say that I don't think the Obama administration did enough. But compared to what Trump has done, it's like the difference between zero and infinity. Look, the other thing this points to, and the greater worry that I have, even more than whether or not he's going to impose sanctions authorized by Congress, is what, if anything, he is going to do as the leader of the country to prevent interference again in 2018 and in 2020. And a basic psychology of Donald Trump seems to be that any reference to Russia, uh, even if you're talking about in the future, prospectively, something that every Democrat and every Republican should be against, just because you care about democracy and the sovereignty of our country, any reference to those things, I think in Donald Trump's you know, twisted psychology, dredges up the past and makes it seem like there's some legitimacy to the thing that he fights against with all of his mind and might that the Russians could have helped him win the election. And so I fear there's a leadership vacuum at the top with respect to something that should be nonpartisan or bipartisan about interference in the future. He just does not and cannot abide anything having to do with Russia, even though the issue of what's happening in the future is separate from what has happened in the past. That's a real shame and a real problem. You know, my hope is that, that Trump will heed the will of his own Congress, who represent the people of America. But, you know, this question about why he's not doing the thing that makes natural sense is something that applies in a lot of different circumstances with this president. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't like it. It's not right. And it's un-American. If I could just reiterate a couple of points that I've made over time on the show. Again, one is we do not know what Robert Mueller is looking at, what his conclusions will be. The second thing is that a lot of news reports you read are just wrong. People have you know, an interest in spreading rumors or false information about what will or will not happen. There was an LA Times story, and I don't know the reporters, and maybe they have excellent sourcing, but there was a report that indicated in some detail what the arrangement would be between Rick Gates, who has been charged, along with Paul Manafort, about his pleading guilty in the near future. That may or may not be so. I tend to think it probably is. But there was also reporting that he had a side deal that was not going to be put in writing between him and Bob Mueller. He would expect to spend 18 months in prison. That strikes me as complete nonsense. I mean, I have no idea. Once again, I'm on the outside. But it doesn't work that way. Prosecutors don't make oral side deals. And typically, in a case where you're providing substantial assistance, you're signing a cooperation agreement, in a white-collar case, there would be no agreement, uh, you know, direct, oral, or written, for a specific term of 18 months. The likelihood is that that person would not serve any time in jail, but that's up to the uh, judge in the case not up to the prosecutor. So just that's just one small example of the kind of thing that you know anonymous sources may not always be believable, make to reporters and it gets spread because people are hungry and eager for information 
I'm constantly issuing caveats as to everything that I say, because I think I'm reasonably intelligent, um, but I'm not a mind reader, and I don't have insight into what is going on in the minds of the people who are running the case. Neither do you. Neither does the press. That's all. My guest this week is Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey, EPA administrator for the Bush White House, and now my partner on the Democracy Task Force. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Governor Whitman, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. So we have a lot to talk about, including a task force that you and I are co-chairing and why we're doing that and what we think that will show. But before that, let me can I ask you one quick softball because it's sort of in the news and you might have an opinion That's on it. That's always nice. I like softballs. <laughs> when, They're good. <laughs> when Good. Uh, right down the middle. When you were the EPA administrator, did you fear taking coach because of the need to interact with regular people? Uh, no, that was never consideration. <laughs> but then again, you know, in fairness, I didn't have the kind of death threats that I guess he's gotten. I mean, no, I didn't ever, I never felt a threat from the public. I never worried about it. People didn't know who I was. They don't really know usually who the head of the EPA is. You're not that controversial, except in certain areas. When you got to have public meetings on a particular, you know, hot topic in a, in a community, then you, they know who you are. But even then, um, even then, it, no, I never worried about the public. I'm not sure I could pick Scott Pruitt out of a lineup, and I'm fairly informed on things. And it's also not clear to me that there are people more likely to be murderers in coach than in first class. But anyway, <laughs> do you, just a quick view, because since you had the job for a few years under the, Bush, the, the second Bush administration, any thought on how the EPA is doing and how this administration is handling the issues that affect air and water. I'm terribly worried. I'm very worried for my children and grandchildren, for myself. Um, the biggest thing, the biggest issue that I have is this denigration of science and the seeming ignoring of science where they have put people in on, for instance, a science advisory panel or a science advisory board. They tend to be the, all the people from the industry. Now, the industry has a right to be at the table anytime a regulation is being considered that affects that industry because they know more about it and the impacts anybody else, but they should not be the predominant force. And that's where we seem to be going. And there's also this, this appearance of security, as we talked about at the very beginning, but it extends into the administrator's office where he has this secret phone booth or phone booth that's, you know, soundproof in his office. There's a whole soundproof room in the basement of the, of the EPA. You don't need a, a separate one up there, but it what it does is there's a lack of trust. And from having talked to people who work at the agency, they don't quite know what to do. They keep their heads down. But they are very worried that we're rolling back some of the protections that are so essential to ensure that we have a healthy environment and healthy air to breathe and water to drink. I want to follow up on something you said that is a concern to a lot of people, the denigration of science. How do you combat that? What do you do about that? Well, I think you have to keep pushing back that Congress really needs to step in. And th those people who get the microphone so much, which is those in Washington, need to talk about the importance of science. We need to get back to basic research and development. 
We need to understand that certainly as far as the Environmental Protection Agency is concerned, regulations aren't just picked out of thin air. They are based on long look at what is safe and what isn't from a scientific point of view. What can humans tolerate? When does it start to become a problem? Do they get it absolute the first time around? Not always. Uh, but they certainly err on the side of protecting humans. And, and it's fair to go back and look at regulations because some may have outlived their usefulness. We may have found out new things. We may have new technology. That's all well and good, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is just we're going to do away with it. And it's uh, two for one. Any one new regulation you want to bring in because you found something that you thought was okay isn't or something new is in the market and you say, no, wait a minute, we've got to be careful about how much exposure we allow people to have to it. If you want to bring that in, you've got to get rid of two regulations as if they're just sort of a whole bunch sitting around there that don't have any basis. For Environmental Protection Agency, that's a very different thing than some of the other regs. Do you think the denigration of science is sort of across the board, or has it largely occurred in a political environment where there are very, very strong feelings on both sides of the aisle with respect to the issue of climate change? I mean, do you think that's what's driving the denigration of science more than anything else? Well, that's certainly driving it at, at the Environmental Protection Agency, but it's happening all the way across the boards. I mean, you see it happening at uh, the National Oceanographic Administration uh, and climate. Uh, you see it happening everywhere. There are heavy science uh, groups where that's important to the work that that agency or department does. They're being ignored and being cut. It's ridiculous that we have this attitude that you can't mention the word climate change. And you can't go to any conference where maybe that might come up, even though that isn't the central theme of the conference. I mean, we're cutting our legs out from under ourselves on protecting ourselves in so many different ways. Let me ask you one more question about the time that you spent as EPA administrator, because it's an issue and a question that resonates, I think, now with people as we look at the Trump administration. So obviously, you know, you have a particular viewpoint. You're an independent thinking person even though you were part of the Bush administration and you're leading an agency to which you, you know, owed a duty and an obligation to promote the issues that were part of the mission of the EPA. And from time to time, if you're an independent thinking person, you don't always agree uh, hook, line, and sinker with everything that the White House wants you to do. That's why you have independent, you know, agencies to some degree. You know, I've seen reports that you had private disagreements from time to time on issues relating to environmental policy. What is the right way, in your view, if you're a cabinet official for any administration, Democratic or Republican, and you have a difference, you know, a good faith difference of opinion on how to implement something or how to roll something out or what the policy on something should be, how do you go about resolving that? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to understand that you don't determine the ultimate policy. You weren't elected to anything. It was the president and the vice president. So it's their policy. And then what you do is you give them your best advice you say, no, you don't think it ought to happen this way, or this is the way it should be done, or that you think. And you keep pushing that. And you push it and until the point where they make a decision. And then if it's something that's not worth falling on your sword over, you salute and say, okay, and you uh, go ahead and, and do it, even though you might disagree to think it doesn't go far enough or isn't quite strong enough or, you know, is not an issue you necessarily would tackle at this point in time. But then there comes a point where you say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I just don't feel comfortable. And 
to my mind, you, you don't make a big issue of that because you weren't elected to do it, but you do owe the administration your loyalty. So you say you, you, the administration, deserve to have someone who can do this in good conscience. And I can't. So I will resign. You don't do a, make a big deal about it, but you quietly step aside and let them have a person who will do what they want to do because they were the ones who were elected. Um, and supposedly the public understood what they were getting and they wanted to uh, move in that direction. So you step aside and let them have someone, let the administration have someone who can do what it is they want to do in good conscience. So let's get to the thing that you and I are co-chairing under the auspices of the Brennan Center, which is, uh, you know, an amazing resource and institution at NYU Law School, where I now teach. Just at the outset, let me say to the audience, you know, you and I are not close, are not friends, but we have two things in common at a minimum. Uh, We're both from Jersey, and we both care about what's happening in the the country and want to think about we got to get, get, get that down right away. <laughs> I've been saying that. For, I'm saying that like you, me, and Bruce. Uh, and so, you know, and I've mentioned on the show before, so we are going to lead a task force on democracy to talk about the ways in which, you know, there might be things that we change, you know, norms that are being transgressed by this president and this administration, as happens in other administrations too, and which of those norms should maybe be made into you know, concrete laws so that we can make the democratic institutions that we hold dear stronger. Tell me a little bit about, because people are sick of hearing from me uh, on the show. Tell me why you think this is important and why you're joining forces uh, for this purpose. It's incredibly important to ensure that the public has a level of confidence in the rule of law, in the government, in the independence of the press. Right now they don't, and any poll will tell you that there's no institution they trust. It's, they don't trust business. They don't trust Congress. They don't trust the press. They don't even trust, they're starting not to trust the laws and the judges and the lawyers. And that is really, really troubling. That's when governments get into trouble. Uh, and we have taken for granted, we will fight very hard for our rights under a democracy, under our democracy, but we forget that there are also some responsibilities that go along with that. That is to be at least relatively informed and to vote. And for a long time, we haven't been doing that in the numbers that we should do it. I think this last election has finally woken people up to the place point where they understand that they've got to exercise that franchise because it does make a difference. But in the meantime, we have to shore up what we have always considered to be the norms of behavior and try to ensure that uh, the public can be confident that people are not coming in with uh, agendas that are hidden. Uh, that's always going to be some of it. We're humans, and unfortunately that's always been the way of, of humans in, in any form of government. But still, there are things that people have to have confidence in, and they're so confused now between fake news and just outright denials of things that are obvious. Uh, there's nothing that they trust, and that worries me deeply about the future of the country. So we'll be looking at a lot of things, you know, whether there should be a requirement to disclose tax returns if you're running for president, whether there should be, you know, more serious laws about conflicts of interest on the part of the president, because we like to say that no one in America is above the law, but it happens to be the case that in some ways, the president of the United States gets special treatment. The president doesn't have to pass a background check to get a, you know, a top secret security clearance or an SCI security clearance. The president doesn't have the same conflict of interest rules that apply to him. 
Well, Congress is kind of in the same place, too. I mean, Congress enacts laws that they don't have to abide by. Um, they get special treatment on things like health care, although this time they did decide they really better go along with what they were passing. But in ge- there are a number of cases where the Congress doesn't adhere to everything they make the average person uh, obey. I think it's all true. One of the things that I think is great in the conversations we've had with the Brennan Center and Michael Waldman, who runs it uh, brilliantly, is the importance of doing this in a bipartisan way and the importance of bipartisanship generally. You once said, the compromise of principle is different from the principle of compromise, which is a great turn of phrase and a great balance line. Do you think people have forgotten that? I think so. We have this attitude that if you use the word, and I heard it when I first went up to the Hill for my confirmation, uh, my courtesy meetings with the Senate before confirmation was, if you even mention the word compromise, somebody, whoever you're talking to, thinks they've lost something. They don't know what, but they think they've lost something. And you don't talk about compromise. And I want to say, have you read your history? Because if you don't think that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams didn't have really, really basic differences of opinion about how government should be set up... Uh, you, you don't understand history. And yet they realized they were about something bigger than themselves and they reached common ground. They compromised. And yet nobody would ever say that they uh, gave up on their principles. They didn't. But they found that common ground that allowed the government to be formed, that allowed us to move the country forward. And that's why we have to keep looking at this and reminding people it's not a sin to reach out across the aisle. That's why the Problem Solvers Caucus of is so important. That Problem Solvers Caucus is a group now of uh, 24 Republicans, 28 Democrats who are working together on a daily basis to look at the big issues of the day. And and they've agreed if 75% of them take a position on an issue, they'll vote as a block. And the more we can get to join that uh, part of No Labels, um, the more they can be a force to be reckoned with. As this is where money comes into politics, and this is where partisan politics now is trumping policy. The problem I feel is it's de rigueur for people to say there's lots of polarization, and that's been true in a lot of times. Maybe it's worse now, maybe it's not. But people on one side, whether it's liberal or conservative, develop these hatreds of the other side or particular people on the other side. There are a lot of people who hate Donald Trump. There are a lot of people who hated Barack Obama. I feel like that makes it harder for people to find something to agree with with them because it makes it look like they're consorting with the enemy. How do you get around this idea if one side, you know, hates a particular person from the other side because they've, you know, and and let's not say it's based on nothing. It's based on very deep feelings about what you think is right or wrong and people are entitled to have those beliefs. But how how do you get around that? You know, every time somebody says something nice about someone from the other side, from time to time, they get excoriated on social media. I don't, I'm not sure how you get around that. Well, it's a, that's certainly the, the difficult problem, which is a social media that we never had before, and the way that reinforces opinions and what we're finding that in that people go to sites that reinforce their preconceived position rather than sites that broaden their perspective. And I think part of the issue here, though, is that that is a smaller percentage than we think. I mean, you look at, at President Trump's base, and that's 32%. And that's going to be solid. That's not going to go anywhere. It doesn't matter what, as he said, he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and he'd be fine. And that's true, I think, with that group. You can't try to change their opinion. It's not going to change. But 32% is not 50. It's not 51. And so you reach out to those that are 
feeling disenfranchised, that feeling they don't have a home. And Republicans and Democrats are both facing this problem. I mean, if you look at the records of registered voters, it's the independent or the non-affiliated that are gaining, and both Republicans and Democrats are losing as we move more to the right and more to the left. And at some point, just from the perspective of, hey, I want to win elections, they're going to have to figure this one out. Part of it's going to happen with redistricting, with that Pennsylvania case that hopefully will make more equitable districts. So on the House side anyway, you're going to get more competitive districts where the candidates will have to speak to the center, have to speak to everybody, not just that small base, because that's all they worry about now is is a primary. Primary is the only thing that counts. At general election, you're good today. Hopefully we will make more competitive districts so that's not the case and they have to reach out to both sides and they're talking to both sides. So that's the kind of thing we need to work on. We need to understand that money is part of it. What happens when someone in Congress today decides that they don't want to do what leadership is calling for, that they want to work with the other side or they have a different, um, they're coming to a different conclusion with members of the other party, their leadership will often say, we're going to challenge you in a primary. We're going to go after you. It's up to the rest of us to say, we're going to be there for them. Do you still consider yourself to be a Republican? I'm an Eisenhower Republican. (laughs) That's the way I describe it. I, I, right, but that, that's not that's not a box you check on the form, right? It's not Eisenhower, no. Rockefeller, Reagan. <laughs> no, but I'm an, I'm an Eisenhower Republican, and I'm going to fight for it because I believe it's important to have two strong parties that represent the majority of the people. And I refuse to say that the people that have what I feel taken over certainly the um, the Congress. Uh, the verbal platform, I guess, is the way to say it, that those who, who get the most attention, obviously, are the ones who say the most outrageous things. And I get that. That's part of the 24, 24-hour news cycle. You've got to say something outrageous and you get on it. Uh, it. But those are not the majority of the people. They're not majority of the party. I don't know about you, Preet, but since we've announced this task force, I've had more people come forward saying, what can I do? I'm just an average yes, citizen, same. but I want to help. I mean, the reason I ask is, you know, to what degree... Is there a Republican Party when President Trump doesn't seem to espouse a lot of the you know, traditional conservative principles that you thought the Republican Party stood for? And so what, what is the state of the two-party system when you have President Trump? Well, I think it's pretty shaky. And I think it will be just as shaky if you have a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren as president. I mean, I, that's what I worry about. I worry about each of the parties are starting to veer off to their extremes. And we've got to be very careful about that because that's not going to build a a stable system here. It will be more of the I hate you because you remember the other party, whether I know you or not. And and that's not good. So you're making, as we say, an impassioned plea and argument for moderation. But let me quote you again, because you said something great on this. You know, by definition you said, it's hard to excite moderates. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Is that true? Because there has been a lot of good reaction. Well I think they're getting they're getting excited now. As again, it's it's ironic that this election cycle, this last election cycle, really people suddenly woke up. I mean, you have women running for office in numbers you never saw before. Women have thought, "Hey, wait a minute, there's a real attack on what's on what we want to see and the way we think government ought to be run." It's not just about you know women's bodily rights. It's not just about Planned Parenthood. It's about much broader issues. How do we handle the DACA kids? What do we do to have a pathway that makes sense? How do we continue to be the compassionate nation that we've been known to be in the past? We've lost that or we're losing that. And 
people want to see that. We want to we want to be the better angels of our nature. You know, Abraham Lincoln had it right. And if we survive the Civil War, we'll survive this. But we won't survive it if we all sit back and say, well, we'll get through it. You got to do something. You can't just assume that we'll get through it anymore. We've got to stand up. You can't wait for the one right person. You know, who is the person that's going to lead us out of this darkness? Uh, where is he or she? We've got to be willing to get more into it to uh, help ensure that that can happen, that that person can actually rise. So that's a great segue, you know, discussion of people getting politically involved to a discussion about your origins in politics. So your, your family was in politics. You were in politics in an indirect way in New Jersey when you were younger. And I just want to describe how I first learned about you. I think I was an undergrad in college. No, you were probably 10. It's okay. I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that young. I'm not that young. And I will say without meaning any offense that when I became conscious of politics and, and leaders in the country, I grew up in New Jersey, a hero of mine and a lot of people was a senator, former professional basketball player named Bill Bradley. And I was in college in the late 80s. And Bill Bradley was being touted as a future vice president, president. He ended up running for president eventually, uh, as it happens. Largely thought of, at least his reputation, was being beyond reproach. And this unheard of uh, young woman named Christine Todd Whitman had the temerity to jump into politics when no one else would run against him because he was such a powerhouse and so popular in New Jersey and decided for the 1990 cycle to run against Bill Bradley for Senate. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> Good question. Good question. <laughs> well, as you know, New Jersey is kind of a bifurcated state, and South Jersey usually wants to secede. And it's hard to get to know the whole state because we only have the two U.S. senators and the governor who are elected statewide. Now we have a lieutenant governor, but that person is chosen by the gubernatorial candidate. And at that point in my life, I had been president of the Board of Public Utilities. I'd been president of the uh, freeholder board in Somerset County, um, the county commissioners, basically. And I had decided I liked elective office better. And if the best job in the world would be governor of New Jersey and a good way to get to know the state, I knew I wasn't going to win, but I thought the best way to get to know the state was to accept the party was looking for a fall person, I guess. And they asked me if I'd run. And I said, yeah, I'll take that chance. I'll see it'll either kill me and I'll have no political future because that's what it had done to the woman who'd run against Bradley in the, his first reelection. She lost by 16 points, but it, I figured it was worth the risk. And so I took it on and turned and out it why, was. Why don't you tell our <laughs> listeners how close you came? Well, it was less than, it was just maybe three percentage points, I guess. But it was one of those things because there really wasn't that much difference in, in where we were on various positions between Bill Bradley and myself. And what it was, though, was the unpopularity of the current governor at the time, Jim Florio, who had raised taxes on everything. And I kept hammering Bradley about what did he think about the tax increases, and he rightly said he had nothing to do with them, and so he didn't have an opinion. Well, that was just the wrong thing to say to the people of New Jersey, and I used to wake up every morning waiting for him to say, you know, I hate taxes just as much as the next person, but i got to respect the job the governor does, and, and so I'm not going to interfere, and that would have blown me out of the water. I mean, it really would have, but he didn't, and I think that's because... People in Washington were so convinced that he was going to win overwhelmingly. He didn't need to worry about it. Nobody knew who I was. I didn't have any money. Um, and he was going to be the next presidential candidate. So don't get into the muck of New Jersey. And his very last ad, I always remember it, it was 
he must have cut it before he even knew he had an opponent. And he was sitting behind his desk in Washington talking about something esoteric that he was dealing with in the Senate. And at the very end, he kicks back and puts his feet on the desk and he has his basketball sneakers on. And people in New Jersey at that point were losing their jobs. 350,000 people left the state, lost their jobs and left the state in that time frame. Or they didn't all leave the state, but they lost their jobs. So they were really worried about the future. And that just kind of was sort of a smack in the face, that I think, that a lot of them felt. And so uh, I got a bigger percentage of the vote than anybody expected. And that kept me alive for the next cycle to run for governor. It did. It, I, you know, the reason I ask is there's a lot of discussion these days about how to get involved, who should get involved. And there are people who I think wake up and think, you know, who am I? How am I going to run against this powerful person? How am I going to run against Paul Ryan? Or how am I going to run against, you know, and it could be a, a very prominent Democratic politician too. And then there are stories like yours. I mean, you didn't, you didn't beat Bill Bradley then, but I remember being, you know, just a private citizen and hearing about it. And, it, and maybe people don't remember and they're not from New Jersey. It was a shockwave for folks. And it launched you on a, on a very amazing political career having come, you know, obviously you were prominent in parts of New Jersey, but not the, to the same degree as Bill Bradley. What, what is your advice to people on either side of the aisle if they have some passion to serve and they have the particular passion to serve in elective office, which not everyone has? But if they do, what do you tell them based on your experience? Do it. And it's especially true for women who will always sit back and say, oh, there's someone better qualified. There's someone who knows more about this than I do. There, there will always be. I mean, I don't care where you go to work, what job you're in. Uh, 99 and 9 tenths percent of the time, there's someone there who knows that job better than you do because they've done it all their life. And you're coming in as, as a CEO or you're coming up with a new idea and there's somebody that's already been working on that kind of an idea for a while. That, that's okay. Find them. Learn from them. Uh, use them in the sense of letting them help you be better. But don't worry about getting outside of your comfort zone. You can learn anything. You can do things uh, that you didn't think you could do, but it's worth the risk. You learn a lot from your failures more than actually your successes, but it's something that it's not going to happen if you don't. And you need to understand that you have a really good chance. You'd be surprised at how far you can get. But you're certainly not going to get there if you don't take that first step. And it may be scary and it may uh, look daunting. But if you can get a support group around you, whether it's family or friends or people who just believe in you, you'll be surprised at how it would grow. And it's worth the effort. You learn an awful lot in the process. And, you know, I lost that election to Bill Bradley, but I got to be governor. And that's really what I always wanted to be. You were the first female governor of New Jersey. I think when you became governor, there were only four female governors in the country. So that's 8% of the governors, even though women make up 50% of the population. Were there any particular indignities you faced in your campaigns because you were a woman? Oh, just the usual of press saying, you know, my hair was too perfect and I looked too elite in a plaid suit or uh, I can't remember what I was wearing or pearls or something. So I just didn't wear pearls again. I mean, you just couldn't worry about it. You, you need to know why people are attacking you, where they're coming from, just so you know it. But on, for instance, on things like being the first woman governor, yes, I was, but since I wasn't going to change my sex, there wasn't a whole lot I could do about that. But I was the first person to defeat an incumbent governor in a general election in New Jersey since the Constitution had been changed since in 1949. And to me, that was the political story, not that I was the first woman and unfortunately to date the only woman. Um, it, but it was that I was able to put together a campaign that, that actually won against an incumbent. 
But you have to, what I'd say to people, something I learned in mountain biking is never look where you don't want to go. If you're on a gnarly single track and, and there's a big rock up there, okay, look at it. Know it's there, but then look at where you want to be. Because if you spend your entire time looking at the rock saying how I'm going to get around it, you hit it. I, at least I did almost every time. Uh, if I looked beyond it and I knew it was there, I could get around it. And that's true of so many things in life. If you keep focused on where it is you want to get, know where people are attacking you and why. And if there's something you can do about it, fine. You don't, as I say, feed the beast. You don't make it easier for them to build on whatever preconception they want to have. But on the other hand, you can't spend your time worrying about that. You've got to spend your time focused on what it is you want to accomplish and why you want to accomplish it. Uh, the greatest definition of leadership came from Dwight Eisenhower. Leadership is about getting other people to do what you want them to do because, and he said he, but I say they want to do it. Um, and that means there's so much behind that because if you can get people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it, that means you have to know why it's important why it should be important to anybody other than you, why should other people care, and you've got to have that passion. And if you can have that, it's amazing what you can do. Let me end by reading you a final quote of yours, which may be my favorite, on this point of you know, people who don't think they have the ability to make a change, they actually do. And, and you at one point said, quote, anyone who thinks that they are too small to make a difference has never tried to fall asleep with a mosquito now, it's true. Every one of us can make a difference. And in fact, in a democracy, we're the only ones who can. And that's what we've got to remember. It's up to us. We're the ones who have the power. It's our government. It's our right to choose those representatives. And we need to do it. And we can make that difference. Governor Whitman, thank you so much for being with us. And I look forward to working with you on the task force. Me too. I look forward to really getting going on that. And uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. So this is the point in the show where I usually talk about something in the news that was largely overlooked and that struck me. But this week, I just want to briefly mention something that struck not just me, but I think every living, breathing person in the country uh, and was not overlooked. And thankfully, doesn't seem to be in danger of being overlooked in the near future. It remains in the headlines. It's now been a week or so since the terrible shooting in Florida at the school that took the lives of 17 innocent people. And so my hope and plan is to actually spend virtually the entire next podcast talking about this issue in a thoughtful, non-yelling, rational way about what gun control means, what gun control uh, regulation is possible, what's rational, what's feasible, why the people who care about it do care about it, how we deal with irrationality on all sides. So we'll do that next week. But I just wanted to say one thing uh, that has been a little bit of a theme on the show and sort of in my thinking about the world and the country in recent months. So a terrible, awful, unspeakable thing happened in Parkland, Florida. And from that, as we see sometimes in various communities, uh, something good emerges too. And the thing that we have seen if you've been anywhere near a television or a smartphone, are the voices of the young people who avoided death but saw their colleagues and teachers, you know, die at the hands of a gunman who shouldn't have had an AR-15. And so even though it's the case that there are some folks who are denigrating, I think, these articulate, courageous kids, suggesting in some cases that they're actors 
whether they're pawns of adults who are using them for their own ideological purposes, what I think is absolutely stunningly and movingly clear is that these are young folks who are on the precipice of adulthood, who care about their country, who care about their colleagues, who are motivated for good reasons, and are not going to shut up. And I think that's something to be applauded. I think it's something to be celebrated. And I think it's something that should inspire us all. People should lay off those kids, let them speak, let them change things. Since we haven't been able to, maybe they can. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Christine Todd Whitman. And thank you for listening. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for all the kind reviews the past few weeks. It really does mean a lot. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. And now we also have an email account. Stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. By the way, happy birthday, Max. I hope you enjoy your 22nd year. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. And this week, special thanks to Regina Revizova. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>